You're listening to Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. It's 11 o'clock. This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Keith Hubbard's Star Talk report highlights the almost total lunar eclipse starting at 1 a.m. and going until 7 a.m. this Friday. Along the Poets Row, Christine San Jose recites about the taste and mysticism of enjoying apples in the season of autumn. From our fall favorites, Farm and Country Archive segments, now you know, Stephanie Phillips speaks with plumber Doug Santoro, who advises folks on shutting down their house for winter. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country, here on Radio Catskill. But first, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News, I'm Barbara Klein. A federal appeals court is blocking the Biden administration's vaccine mandate for businesses with more than 100 employees. As NPR's Amy Held reports, last week the panel temporarily froze the mandate. The New Orleans-based Court of Appeals refused to lift its emergency stay issued last weekend, writing the vaccine mandate raises serious constitutional concerns, causes economic upheaval, and grossly exceeds the federal government's authority. The Biden administration argues without it, the pandemic will be prolonged and more people will die. The three-judge panel, all Republican-appointed, indicates the mandate, not scheduled to go into effect until January 4th, will go nowhere, calling it fatally flawed. Other challenges, though, remain in circulation. In all, more than two dozen Republican-led states plus businesses have filed suit. And the issue may ultimately be decided by the Supreme Court. Amy Held, NPR News. Negotiators at the Climate Summit in Glasgow are in overtime today, tweaking a third draft of a climate change deal. It still includes some unprecedented pledges, but the BBC's Matt McGraw reports the issue of financial support from rich countries to poor is still unresolved. The latest text is essentially unchanged on two critical issues. The first is the question of getting countries to come back next year with strengthened carbon-cutting plans. The other is the idea that nations should move away from using coal for energy if it doesn't have technology fitted that will capture the warming gases. Campaigners, though, are unhappy that there's no funding to help countries cope with the impacts they just can't adapt to, such as storms linked to climate change. This issue could cause a major row in the coming hours as the UK attempts to wrap up a deal here in Glasgow. The BBC's Matt McGraw reporting from Glasgow. India is considering a lockdown because of air pollution. NPR's Lauren Freyer reports air quality in New Delhi, the capital, has reached more than four times the safe limit. For more than a week, New Delhi's air quality index has been in the high 400s on a 500-point scale. By contrast, the U.S. EPA considers anything over 100 to be unhealthy. It happens every winter here when industrial and vehicular emissions mix with smoke from crop burning after the harvest. It's so bad the Taj Mahal is barely visible in smog. Flights have been disrupted. And about 1.7 million Indian deaths a year are attributed to pollution. Now the Chief Justice of India's 
Supreme Court is demanding the government come back to him by Monday with a plan, which he says might include two-day lockdowns. Already people are being told to stay indoors and to work from home if possible. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, Mumbai. This is NPR. Support comes from Van Gorder's Furniture, featuring Lodge and Adirondack styles as well as rustic collections. With showrooms at Lake Wall and Poppock, downtown Honesdale, and Milford, PA. Van Gorder's Furniture brings the outdoors inside. VanGorders.com. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farm and Country. Coming up on today's show, along the Poets Row, Christine San Jose recites about the taste and mysticism of enjoying apples in the season of autumn. From our fall favorites, Farm and Country Archive segments, now you know, Stephanie Phillips speaks with plumber Doug Santoro, who advises folks on shutting down their house for winter. But first... Keith Hubbard's Star Talk report highlights the almost total lunar eclipse starting at 1 a.m. and going until 7 a.m. this Friday. Thank you for joining us for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. Country. I'm Keith Hubbard, and this is Star Talk. On Friday morning, the full moon will pass through Earth's shadow, setting up a lunar eclipse. The moon will not be entirely engulfed by Earth's shadow, so there will be a very tiny part of the moon that will be in direct sunlight. Even though 97% of the moon will be completely in Earth's shadow, leaving only 3% exposed to the sun, this eclipse is still called a partial lunar eclipse. The moon will still take on the characteristic ruddy color of a total lunar eclipse and will be an impressive sight to see. The moon will slide into Earth's outer shadow and nearly fully into Earth's inner shadow before slipping back out of Earth's shadows. This sequence will last for six hours and we will be able to see nearly all of it. The moon will begin its journey into Earth's shadow at 1.03 a.m and will be high in the southwestern sky at that time. The moon will enter Earth's inner shadow, or umbra, at 2.18 a.m. The moon will gradually darken and turn a ruddy color until the time of maximum eclipse at 4.02 a.m. The moon will then begin to leave Earth's shadow and will exit Earth's umbra at 5.47 a.m. The eclipse event will end at 7.03 a.m when the moon leaves Earth's outer shadow, the penumbra. Rise early on Friday morning to watch the almost total lunar eclipse. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future Star Talk segments, my email address is startalk at farmandcountry.org. For Farm and Country and Star Talk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up. 
For WJFF and Farm and Country, this is Christine San Jose. Bit of a chill in the air along the poet's road this morning. But our first poet, D.H. Lawrence, that bad boy of the early 20th century, shows due respect for one of the joys of the season. Mystic, he calls it. They call all experience of the senses mystic when the experience is considered. So an apple becomes mystic when I taste in it the summer and the snows, the wild welter of earth and the insistence of the sun, all of which things I can surely taste in a good apple. Though some apples taste predominantly of water, wet and sour, and some of too much sun, brackish, sweet, like lagoon water that has been too much sunned. If I say I taste these things in an apple, I am called mystic, which means a liar. The only way to eat an apple is to hog it down like a pig and taste nothing. That is real. But if I eat an apple, I like to eat it with all my senses awake, Hogging it down like a pig, I call the feeding of corpses. (laughs) And here's someone else who knows her apples. Mary Barrett, well-loved college teacher in New York State some years ago, says days of autumn. In the golden days of autumn, let us reap a fruitful harvest of love. Let us store away the apples of desire. Let us gather up the walnuts of our laughter against the winter's day when winds howl and sleet assaults the window pane. We will be snug and warm. And to enjoy, just to look back at some of the lovely things that D.H. Lawrence says, an apple becomes mystic when I taste in it the summer and the snows, the wild welter of earth and insistence of the sun, all of which things I can surely taste in a good apple. And as he says, if I eat an apple, and I think that goes for all sane people, if I eat an apple, I like to eat it with all my senses awake. Hogging it down like a pig, I call the feeding of corpses. So many thanks to all your farmers out there. This has been Christine San Jose for Farm and Country along the Poets Road. Stephanie Phillips with Now You Know for Farm and Country. We're getting some cool nights and some of our snowbirds are getting ready to leave for the winter. If you're faced with shutting down your summer house, what do you need to know? I asked Doug Santoro of DJS Plumbing and Heating in Calicoon. Doug, when do you start getting calls about closing down a house for the winter or draining the pipes? I've already started getting calls. It's great when they take the initiative to give me a call in August, letting me know that October is probably going to be in and around the time they're going to be calling me again to shut the house down. 
What if you're the kind of person who comes up on weekends or occasionally maybe to go cross-country skiing in the wintertime, but you're not in the house during the rest of the week? How would you recommend dealing with that? If you're going to leave the house open and be away from it for days, if not a week or two at a time, I recommend leaving your heat set at 55 degrees. Thermostats are usually located somewhat in the middle of a house. If we were to take a laser thermometer and point it at the underneath of a kitchen sink, when it's 55 in the middle of the house, it's going to be 45 under that sink or even 40 degrees. So we want to guide people in the direction of leaving the temperature turned up to something safe. You mentioned a cold temperature alarm. How do those work? The temperature alarms that we sell are connected to your telephone. I like utilizing that more than internet devices because the landline telephone that most of us have is one of the most reliable form of communication. The low temperature alarm can be installed in a few different ways. It can be something very simple, nothing more than plugging it into a phone jack. If you've got a phone already there utilizing that phone jack, plug in a splitter and then the phone into one part of the splitter and the low temperature alarm into the other. If there's an answering machine, another splitter gets installed and it should work out. They have a nine volt battery backup. So if there's a blackout for an hour or two or even three, the battery will call if the temperature in the house drops. If you want to leave the water on in your seasonal house, will a heated pipe cable work to keep the pipes from freezing? I did install quite a few of them, but about 15 or 20 years ago, I became a firefighter. So I'm a first responder with the Calicoon Fire Department, as well as a plumber. I've been to a few fires that were started from inexpensive heating cables. Wrapping a plastic pipe with a heating cable is not a good idea. I'm more of a fan of conditioning the space versus wrapping a heating element around a pipe. A lot of older ones waste a lot of energy. Sometimes people forget to unplug them. Sometimes they're not automatically controlled, in which case you're using energy needlessly. And if an animal could chew through it, I'm just not a fan of them. Maybe we could hire a carpenter and build a little enclosure and maybe have them install insulation. So that's what you mean by conditioning the space. Yeah, yeah. Insulating and heating. Insulation is not enough. Pipe insulation doesn't really keep a pipe from freezing. It delays the inevitable. The pipe is still going to freeze. It just needs a little bit more time to do it. Insulation doesn't generate heat. It can capture it and hold on to it. Insulation also reduces cold infiltration, but a little bit of heat goes a long way when you're not using the home full time and you want it to be working for you when you do arrive. Now, I guess if you're using a heated pipe cable and the electricity goes off, you're doomed anyway. That's true, but most heating systems rely on electricity in some form. Doug, can you take us through the steps of draining pipes or preparing the house for winter? Yeah, I utilize an air compressor when shutting a house down. It could be something as simple as the ones that you see in the hardware store, or they could be commercial grade heavy duty ones like we have. We run the hose from the air compressor over to a cold water connection, either outside or inside the house. 
and plug the compressor in. Then we go to the circuit breaker panel and then we shut down all of the unnecessary things. The 220, the heavy duty appliances, like the well, the water heater, stove, dryer, and then we drain the water heater and we drain the well storage tank. We maybe even take a step to disconnect the well line at the end of the winterization process. Once the water heater and the well storage tank are drained, instead of water filling these, now we've got compressed air filling up inside of the tanks. As we go to the kitchen faucet, water comes out, but then air follows. So now we're not only blowing out the water, but we're almost drying the inside of the piping in the process. As the compressor is running, it's sending compressed air into the water heater and the well storage tank, and it's warm air because it actually heats up the air a little bit. Then we go around and we use everything. The toilets, the tubs, the showers, dishwasher, washing machine, ice maker, hose connections outside. We take a look around in the basement and we look for pipes that have dead-ended over the years. We look inside of cabinets. We're looking for things that will freeze. Wine, beer, salad dressing, soda, bottled water, ice packs in the freezer. We'll put it in a box and put it in the basement. But then after we've checked everything, we'll then pour antifreeze down the toilets, in the toilet tank, down the flush mechanism, in the sink, in the shower or tub, inside of the dishwasher, inside of the washing machine. Run those through a cycle. Sometimes dryers will have a steam setting on them and a little bit of a drainage kind of a thing to it. So we have to be mindful of all of those things. After all of that, and we've triple checked everything, that's when we close the door. Well, wait a minute. When in the process do you look for the main cutoff and turn off the water? And where do you find that cutoff? Okay, I'm sorry. When I started off by saying shutting off the breakers, the well breaker. People, when they have a well at their house, there's usually a pump either in the basement or down at the bottom of their well. Shutting off the power to that stops the flow of water into the house. The main valve, if somebody wanted to shut off their water to their home, is usually located by the well storage tank. You can see a black plastic line usually coming into the building. That's from your well into the building, into the tank. And then you'll see a copper pipe or a PEX pipe leaving the well storage tank. And there's usually a valve right there. I always get confused about which way is open and which way is closed. Is there a standard way to turn off a valve? If you're staring at the handle and the handle is round and you're, you're looking down at it, if you turn it clockwise, that's closed. Counterclockwise, that's open. Sometimes as you close it, you'll see the handle get closer to the pipe that the valve is attached to. Then there's ball valves, which are a quarter turn and usually just have a lever handle and parallel with the pipe means that the valve is open and then perpendicular or against the pipe would be closed. It can be very tricky, I know. I shut down a trailer one winter and forgot about the shower diverter and there was water in between the bathtub and the shower that remained there and of course broke the pipe. Yeah, newer tub shower valves today with a single handle, most of them can't be drained. Just opening up a drain in the basement and turning on the faucet will not allow the water to drain down 
from the pipe that's inside of the wall going up to the shower head because there's anti-scald little check valves and things inside. They're keeping us from burning ourselves. But at the same time, it makes things a little bit more difficult. That's why I utilize an air compressor because you can't drain that stuff. You have to push the water out of that. Old school shower valves, two handle, hot and cold, with a spout and a lift up lever or a pull down spout, they'll drain down. Three valve, hot, diverter, cold, shower valves, some of them are really good and solid and when you divert water up to the shower head, it won't drain water down. So you gotta kinda leave that in a halfway open position. So this way the water drains out of the riser going up to the shower head, down to the spout and you don't have a problem. Okay, so suppose you've got all the water out and you're about ready to leave the house. Do you leave those taps open or closed? It doesn't matter, but I could see if the house was being drained without an air compressor where you were just opening up drains, hoping for the best that all the water drains down, then yes, those valves and drains should be left open or in the halfway open position. I mentioned the diverter and the shower. Are there other spots that are particularly troublesome and likely to have water left behind? Toilets, the fill mechanism in a toilet, the newer ones, when you drain a house down, they don't necessarily allow air in to drain. Air needs to be allowed in, so this way it can drain down. Other areas that we need to focus more on is dishwashers and ice makers. You have to let them run through a cycle. You have to disconnect them. And in some instances, I have to take the parts with me back to my place and keep them heated throughout the winter. Water softeners, inline filters, and then reinstall them in the spring. How do you get the water out of the toilet? You're not going to use an air compressor for that. No. We flush it to try and hold the handle down to try to get all the water out of the tank. But then... We utilize gallons of RV antifreeze, pouring it down the drain for the sinks and the tubs. And we pour a little bit in the toilet tank and make it so it's at least a 50-50 mix with whatever residual water is in the toilet tank. But when it comes to the toilet bowl, we have a system where you take the plastic one-gallon jug of antifreeze and flip it upside down, point it towards the water, and then give it a squeeze. And that actually creates a vortex or a secondary flush. And then just a very minimal amount of water and antifreeze is left behind. We might drizzle just a little bit more in to get that color, that pink-orange color, that we know that it's a strong enough mix that we're not going to have a problem. Is that stuff toxic? Uh, no. The RV antifreeze is definitely not toxic. It's an alcohol base antifreeze. Sometimes it's a glycol base antifreeze, but it's all safe, non-toxic. Then when you come up again in the spring and you're ready to open up the place, what do you need to do to get your water running again? Basically, it happens the same way a house is closed, but we just reverse the things that we're doing. But one of the things that is very important is to not turn on the electric to your water heater until it's full. Right. It is a chronic, chronic service call that we go out on in the springtime where people open up the houses themselves and they just go to the breaker panel and turn on all of their breakers. If they have an electric water heater, then immediately the top element is fried because it's not surrounded by water 
shutting off all of the drains is where I would begin if anything is open that was used to drain the house down. I leave the main cold water valve off that's located by the well storage tank. I'll even shut off the valve, if there is one, into the water heater. This way we're sectioning things off. We're then going to turn on the breaker for the well and we're isolating any water to the well storage tank because we have the main valve off. I can see the gauge is rising, it's coming up to pressure. Click, I hear the pressure switch shut off. We know that that's good. We then open up the main valve and it's sending cold water throughout the house because we've shut off the water heater. We've shut off the piping for the water heater. And then we open up the water to the water heater and start filling it up. And then go around and use every faucet. Open up the hot water faucet and then that will vent the air. So water is flooding into the well storage tank. The air is being displaced out of the faucet, usually a tub valve or a shower valve, a nice big fixture that flows a lot. So this way, if there's any sand or grit or dirt or rust in the piping, it doesn't get clogged in a small orifice of like a bathroom faucet or something like that. And once water comes out, we know the water heater is full. Make sure everything works and then turn on the water heater. And I guess you have to run the water for a little while to get all that pink stuff out. The antifreeze, we pour it down the drain when we're doing winterizations. It's rare that I'll put antifreeze inside of water pipes. Because if you do that, it could go not only into the well storage tank, but it could go into the water heater. And then, like you say, you're running the water for hours to try to purge that pink orange stuff out. I wonder what it does to your septic, too. It's probably not very different than taking an old bottle of wine and dumping it down the sink. Although that's kind of a sin. It's alcohol or glycol. It's almost a food grade. It's not something that's going to hurt your septic system. I wonder if there's anything else that you think is important for our listeners to know? Yeah. If you're going to leave your heat on and leave your homes ready to visit in the middle of the winter, I think it's a really good idea to have a low temperature alarm of some sort in place. Leaving your heat at 55 and having a low temperature alarm is very much better than having the home checked once a week. Turn off the breaker to your well if you're not there. Turn off the water to your washing machine. And turning off your water heater is a good idea. A checklist that you should make for yourself. Making sure that your heating system is in good nick for an annual checkup is always a good idea. Unplug all unnecessary appliances. Remove all your food and relocate your liquids that could be damaged if they freeze. Wine, beer, soda, what have you. If you've got a sump pump, check it. And a side note, latches on your outside doors from high winds is a good idea. Topping off your fuel supply. Leave your thermostat at 55. You've been listening to Doug Santoro of DJS Plumbing and Heating in Calicoon explaining how to drain your pipes for the winter. So now you know. This has been Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country.
We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteers Keith Hubbard, Christine San Jose, and Stephanie Phillips. Special thanks goes to our guest, Doug Santoro, who advises folks on shutting down their house for winter. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening to Farm and Country on Radio Catskill. Radio Catskill is public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. We're on air at 90.5 FM. We're also available on your smartphone and smart speaker. Our archived programs are available on our webpage, wjffradio.org. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org This Week in This American Life Ed McBroom is a Republican state senator and dairy farmer out with his cows at the Michigan State Fair. And one by one, people come up to argue with him about the 2020 election. Ed read the state investigation into whether there was fraud. It found 